This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning to you all, radiotherapists out there. It's time to prepare yourself for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doolittle, one of the resident shrinks, and you are listening to 3RRR. On today's show, we have two guests. Joining us first up is Adam McKenzie. In 2016, three weeks into a sold-out comedy festival show, Adam was diagnosed with bowel cancer and rushed to surgery. Now, two years later, he's preparing for his new comedy festival show called Laser Light, and it's all about comedy and health, and he's in the studio with us this morning. Following on from Adam, we were going to be joined by Sally Goldner. Sally has been involved in the gender-diverse community for about two decades, including time at Transgender Victoria and the Bisexual Alliance Victoria, and winning 2015's LGBTI Victorian of the Year. Sally joins us to talk about the experience of healthcare in Victoria for gender diverse people and we've also got two of our trusty panelists dr trainer wheels a medical student well on the way to finishing she must be almost there god it seems like forever and the panel beater a global health researcher completing his phd and every week i give him a different uh, intro and he looks at me like are you an idiot can you remember one thing from one thing to week to the next and the answer is no i can't and he's a master of the radio panel. But before all that, let's begin with a little bit of news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case loving you. Yeah, they're all laughing at me because basically, as is well known and as I've owned up to before, so I feel I'm justified. I am a functional moron. <laughs> um, I basically don't know what I'm doing. But let's say good day to Adam first because he's actually in the studio with us. Good day, Adam. Good day. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's nice of you to. Did you travel from a long way away? I'm in Fitzroy. It's just a stone's throw. You bastard. I know. That's just I too easy. I woke up five minutes ago. God, see, I had to come all the way. From, I'm in South Bank these days. I'm sophisticated oh, these days. I'm sophisticated. Oh, poor you. And the, the drive, the drive, it almost wears me out. Shocking. What about you? Where do you come from? I'm Fitzroy as well, yeah, mm. so oh, very God. close. But I get up early. I don't like to rush, so, you know, I like to take my time and have my toast. And- nice. I-, I could sort of imagine you having, you know, one of those healthy breakfasts. I don't know, you know, what are those berries or something? You just seem like a avocado healthy. on toast today. Oh, oh fancy. Nice. So medical student. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, I, my son has that all the time too. <laughs> hey, uh, Panel B, did you want to formally... Uh, one day I, I'll try and remember a proper <laughs> intro. Why <laughs> don't you just write it down? <laughs> <laughs> I do, but then I lose the bits of paper I write things down. And if I write it on the back of my hand, I lose that because once a week I have a shower. Well, so the thing is, when you <laughs> when you do introduce me, I think, geez, that wouldn't be a bad title if it was true. You know? <laughs> I, know. I, mean, I could be well, global are, health. That's really impressive. Yeah. You are a PhD wow. candidate. Though. That's I got right. That right. Yeah, you've got that right. Where are you yeah. up to? Oh, I'm at the pointy end, yes. Hence the stress and anxiety and the lack of social skills. <laughs> <laughs> the pointy end is the worst end. Yeah. People out there who have done PhDs will know. You know, you spend the, like, it, you, when you feel you're at the 95% mark and, you know, you're on the verge of handing in, it actually turns out you're about halfway through <laughs> and the writing up takes 10 times longer than you anticipated. Yeah, yeah, everything takes longer. Yeah, yeah, and you become more and more pedantic with yourself about... Yuck. Yeah. Hey, look, we're going to kick off with some news because I did promise that. And the news that we're kicking off in comes from Trainer Wheels. Yep. Hi. 
Hi, trainer. Over to you. <laughs> um, so there was an article on the ABC online about a week ago, I think, that I wanted to talk about briefly. It, the title was Ban Forceps, says mother who suffered through traumatic childbirth. AMA disagrees. Like it. I like it so far. Well, it wasn't a very good article. I didn't think. <laughs> no, I don't think. Thanks it for bringing it to us. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it to our attention. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, that's the news. <laughs> Thanks you and good night. <laughs> um, okay, so I thought the article was did a pretty bad job of presenting both sides of the argument um, because it turns out that this woman that they interviewed isn't actually advocating for banning forceps. Um, she was sort of caught out of context saying that um, and it's a pretty impractical goal forceps are used when they have to be for good reasons and if we stopped using them altogether, the consequences would be really disastrous so she's not calling for that because she knows that they're necessary sometimes and that's in line with the AMA's statements on the issue as well this lady started the Birth Trauma Association of Australia and their aim is actually more about better educating women about the risks associated with vaginal delivery which I think can only be a good thing Perineal trauma related to labour and childbirth it can be extremely debilitating and it's something that isn't really talked about enough, I think, and a lot of women end up suffering in silence. So I think the Birth Trauma Association and obstetricians in general actually want the same things and the ABC presented yep. it as if they were sort of these opposing views, but I think they actually want the same things. They want women to have safe deliveries without complications with a healthy woman and a healthy baby at the end of the day. That's what everybody wants, yep. right? No obstetrician... That's a no-brainer, though. Obviously. Yeah. No obstetrician wants to leave a woman with perineal trauma if they can avoid it and no woman is going to say they'd rather a dead baby than to have a forceps delivery. Yeah. You know, like I think there's actually room for both positions to say, yes, forceps are necessary, but also perineal trauma is terrible and we should avoid it and educate women about it. Both those views, they're, they're compatible, mm. but the article presented it as if they weren't. Um, and I think the ABC kind of missed the point and I think what the point actually is is that it's about valuing women's health, listening to patients and informing them properly about what's going to happen to them and that's just all the normal stuff that doctors should be doing. Anyway, um, I, th I love this topic. I think it's so interesting and I could talk about it forever, but which, I am which conscious part of, of the time. Because which part of the topic do you love? Because um, the actual, the evidence around forceps and, you know, where that's up to in its developmental process and, you know, because that's going to always have issues of some people seeing forceps being used as um, lazy medicine um, and uh, being used for doctors' benefits to rush through, whereas, of course, the healthcare industry, not just doctors, the, of course, the midwives, will see it as, um, as a medical intervention that's totally necessary in certain circumstances and they'll be, you know, figuring out the evidence base of where those circumstances are. So there's that bit. The, the, bit, see, the bit I love is, you know, is the representation of healthcare stories in the media. I was supposed to do a grand round on this at a hospital about a week ago and they cancelled me on the day. It's not very and nice. in case you're listening out there. Um, I love that topic. Which topic do you love? I think I, I, I love both, honestly. I love, I, I love anything that talks about women's health. I think it's really important to give it more exposure um but yeah i think the way it's represented they sort of and i'm disappointed that the abc did it honestly because i would have expected a bit more of them what day but, of the week was it out of interest because i, I think it this, was a friday all oh, right because i have this theory Thursday. that sunday is just the day of crap journalism <laughs> and so you know so many yeah. and and sometimes the story lies in that sometimes the mistake lies in the headline so the person's just written a, sh a shit headline for a story that's actually not bad and sometimes the mistake lies in the way the journalist has written the story so they sensationalize in the first three or four paragraphs and give you the proper detail in paragraphs 7, 8 and 9, which 80% of people don't get to. So, The, the yeah. thing that bothered me with it especially is they sort of talked about how forceps are, have been banned elsewhere and there are good alternatives and da-da-da, but they didn't actually talk about the limitations of the alternatives and they didn't talk about really, I think, what the consequences of 
what banning forceps would actually look like in the absence of a, an adequate alternative. Um, and they also didn't talk about the fact that perineal trauma can occur in the absence of forceps use. Um, and, and also, yeah, I think this lady was sort of hard done by as well because they painted her as if she yeah. wants to ban forceps everywhere, but that's actually not what she wants, really. And, of course, part of it is just the, ten, the problem that we face at the moment, whereas there is so much media... The competition is so great because of social media and so many outlets and so much internet. Then, in order to get people's attention, you virtually have to say something outrageous, exactly, which is an awful shame. Yeah, I, 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 pick, I um, go with you, Doolittle, on an interest in the way that um, the media represents these as problems. And there's this thematic across all sorts of issues at the moment, which is to undermine the expertise of institutions. And we know that in news items, you've got to create conflict to get interest, right? So that's a given. That's been around forever. But there's increasing emphasis on undermining expertise and uh, especially institutional expertise. See, uh, see, I don't have a problem with that. You know, I'm, I'm inherently anti-authoritarian but, and I'm inherently suspicious of big institutions. Oh, and, and I am too, absolutely. My, my DNA is anti-authoritarian and suspicion of authority in that respect. But I think there's a difference between what, how that manifests when you're taking a, uh, a constructive critical approach and holding people to account. That's one thing. But to to destabilise these important institutions like hospitals and universities and government authorities and so on, simply for the sake of creating conflict, that's a different approach. And something that was so interesting, I think, with this article, there were heaps of comments on it on Facebook, as you'd imagine. And I think in quite an unusual situation, the comments, some of them were a lot more reasonable than the article itself. I mean, a lot of the comments were really out there and over the top, but mm. it's very interesting. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Um, as I mentioned, Adam McKenzie, um, at the age of 37 in April 2016, when he was, I think it was slap bang in the middle of a comedy festival show, he was diagnosed with bowel cancer. But um, I think rather than me giving the story again, let's go to Adam. G'day, Adam again. G'day. Thanks for having me in. Um, yeah. Why don't you start off with telling us what happened back in 2016? It was pretty crazy. Uh, so comedy festival, it's comedy festivals rocking around in, I think, this week, next week. Um, yep. And so this is two years ago, uh, my, comp, my uh, sketch group Watson we were in the middle of a sketch show uh, it was going really well it, in, in a surprise turn of events it was selling out like we had sold out the rest of our season That's we were hard three. at the comedy festival it's hard so much competition absolutely and we were so stoked and we were really happy that everyone was enjoying the show we were enjoying the show uh, and um, so at the um, start of the fourth week into comedy festival uh i i was not feeling very well i'd, I'd gone to my doctors um and they weren't really giving me uh, a diagnosis that uh i was happy with because i was still kind of unwell um and so i eventually went into emergency uh and that's when just the the Am I allowed to swear on this show? Yeah, no. Shit hit the fan. Um, I've already said quite, shit about three times this Yeah, morning. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But when I say it, when, in terms, when it comes to bowel cancer, when That's you say shit hits the, the fan, that could be real. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, they, it was like I was rushed into... Like, they, they, and and uh, part, of, part of the show, part of the comedy show that I'm doing this year, Laser Light, is talking about the experience. And what I want to do... Is I want to talk about my experience through the filter that I know, which is comedy. And yep. I mean, it might seem pretty strange to make fun of being rushed into emergency surgery for bowel cancer, but it was like being on a roller coaster. Like it, it just it was on, and there was this like 
there was this moment where you they did one scan, they did a CT scan, and then and then after that, the whole um, uh, mood of the staff in emergency just it changed. And so I was into um, I was into surgery. I was into surgery um, from ED. Uh, from emergency. So yeah. surely they admitted you to hospital for a couple of days first, work you up? No, uh, uh, no, no, absolutely oh, really? not. It was, it was like, ED. this needs to happen in the next, right now, Jeez. or wow. or you're, it's done. Do you know why? It's, it's, I mean... I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the normal... You know, not mostly for, so for bowel cancer, yeah. Mm. You know, it's not, unless something's about to bleed, then normally it's not a huge rush. Anyway. Right. There right. must have well, been some reason, though. There must have been some reason, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so from there, you know, it was um, surgeries and um, uh, chemotherapy and uh, I, I had a stoma uh, for six months. And, uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm telling it all in a Do you remember much of the first few months? Because, you know, you know I work in cancer. And right, the yes, first of course. Couple of, the first couple of months are so busy. You know, in fact, because mm. I'm on the psych side of it, obviously, and mm. a lot of people don't even have time to see us in the first three months. They're no. just so flat out. Mm. Diagnosis, tests, yeah. running off a surgery, recovering from surgery, chemotherapy yeah. once a week, radiotherapy sometimes. And it's sort of like often the three or four month mark where people sort of mm. sort of metaphorically sigh and then start thinking about where they're up to. Absolutely. And especially um, like it, it like you, you become very busy. Like you, you get put in the system and it's like I, a full time job. Oh, absolutely. And I, I went through the public system. I didn't have private health because, you know, <laughs> anyone out there who who is a 37-year-old who's thinking, when do, why would I need private health insurance? Uh, let me tell you. Um, but, but the thing is, is that the public health system is actually, has my experience has been, it's been really great. Yep. Um, but it is a roller coaster and, you know, you're in, suddenly you're in chemotherapy and I didn't have any reference like the only reference i had for for cancer like my my father had cancer and um he passed away from that uh, same sort was it about he actually yeah he did and mm. um uh he um uh yes yeah, so uh but i didn't have like you know personal experience of what it was like to go into a chemotherapy center because so you know the other crazy. big thing too is you're 35 that's yeah. so it's very young obviously to get yeah cancer. Well, most cancer occurs, but yes i was very oh, sorry 37 yeah most cancer occurs in old people obviously yeah and so most people at the age of 37 haven't actually thought about how they would they haven't mentally prepared themselves absolutely Once, you know, not you know um, and you haven't had friends and you no, know, no. And peers even yeah. at my age you know i'm in my 50s you know, friends have started to have illnesses and so you start mm. to mentally prepare and think, how am I going to cope? Mm. Yeah. And I think when young people get problems, sometimes it's hard because they just haven't thought about mm. what they would do. So mm. sort of, did you, I don't know, how did you go, go with all that? Uh, I, I had, I, I just, I had no idea how I was going to go. I, but uh, surprisingly, it, it, it becomes very unemotional in a way like mm. because it's very physical like it's like now you have to go here do that get that stuck into you it becomes practical uh, it becomes really practical yeah. absolutely and it's not until you know you're three four five months down the line uh when uh, I, I remember i was at the cancer center and um uh, they said would you like to see a psychologist and i'm like i think i would <laughs> I've got a few what things a that I... Idea. I mean, I can't imagine why I would need to see one. Um, yeah. <laughs> Give uh, him a piece of your mind. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I want to complain about what just happened You know to what, me. just interestingly, just as an aside, just to chuck in, you know, some stuff. So 70% of people, once they've had cancer, report that they suffered significant psychological distress. Um, of mm. that, but only 25% actually need help with it. So the rest of them, mm. the rest <laughs> of them, their friends, family, supports, usual networks yeah. get them better. So 25% of people need help. And of that 25, mm. about half 
get better with their GP, their oncologists, their nurses, yeah. all the cancer supports, and about half need either uh, some sort of shrinks, usually a psychologist. Yeah. And but so in theory, about twelve percent. But in Victoria, only about 3% get referred. And the numbers are incredibly low. So we know there's this massive gap. Mm. And, in fact, if you look at things like the um, Cancer Experience Survey in Victoria where they, um, you know, uh, the government essentially um, uh, sends out a questionnaire every couple of years, the worst figure is normally what was the support like around your experience of cancer. Mm. Normally only about 60% of people say that was adequate. Yet... This is me. It's going to sound like an advertisement for my industry now. <laughs> yeah, Don't. nothing gets done. Um, yeah. But we'll, get, we'll move on. One thing that is another bugbear that we hear a lot, though, is people's diagnosis and the experience of finding out. Were you happy? How did yours all go? Uh, well, you know, I was in, I was in emergency, um, and I, I remember the first, word they, the first time I actually heard the word cancer uh said to me like because like everyone was tiptoeing around it like things got real really quickly i was suddenly you know i was in pre-op um i think that's what they call it um i I have i get most of my knowledge from uh you know medical tv shows how do you think i passed med school (laughs) or as i like to call them documentaries yeah 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 doctor um anyway uh yeah exactly um so but i had the anaesthetist come in and i had my whole family there by this stage it was like you know, um, yeah, my whole family was in the uh, waiting room with me or the, the um, pre-op area. And the Anitas came in and he's like, all right, so you got cancer. Why are we going to do this? And, and everyone, I remember my whole family going, whoa, uh, what What are you talking about? No, it's like, is that confirmed yet? Like, oh, that is like, and then he kind of stepped back from oh, it. He's like, God. oh, um, maybe it's like it's oh, wow. No, no. wow, and so that's oh. when that's when it became super real. Um, yeah, I'm sort of cringing on behalf of the anaesthetist at this stage, but I think um, my empathy is yeah misplaced. But, really you, yeah, but do you know what's really funny? Like he was he 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 had become uh, like. He left, and my family was like, "Oh, that guy! That guy was a dick! Like, what the? What an asshole!" Because he would have been kicking himself. Oh, I know. Uh, you know what? That's funny because I had exactly the same response yeah. as you, um, trainer. Was my immediate thought was, "Oh no, I know I've done lots of stupid things. Like, I'm, I'm terrible." Yeah. You know, I, people say I have no frontal lobes. Whatever comes into my brain comes out of my mouth, and it's terrible. And sometimes I say, it's, "I say dead, dumb, stupid things like that," and I'm so embarrassed for about a week afterwards. But. I, oh. I agree that my empathy is misplaced. Well, Absolutely. of course, I had to meet him again quite soon after yes. as I get wheeled into the um, to, to the anaesthetist's um, area. Yes. Um, uh, again, medical knowledge. Um, uh, and post-op. Post-op. Yeah. Uh, he was great. He was great because oh, he's okay. like, so he was, he was like, all right, so, um, oh, you're a comedian? I'm like, yeah. And so before surgery, he's like, oh, who's your favourite comedian? Oh, have you seen anything at the comedy festival? I'm like, well, actually, I'm, oh. I'm in the comedy festival. Well, I don't think I am anymore um, <laughs> unless, unless I can be out of here in a couple of hours. Um, what do you reckon? Can yeah, you? what do you reckon? I've got a show at eight. <laughs> at least um, you didn't put it aside. Hey, put the cancer aside for a minute. Tell yeah. me a joke. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so how do you feel about, you know, so having just mm. said that, jokes aside. So No, no, it's jokes how, on yeah. the, like, absolutely. Well, that's what I want to mm. ask you. Where do you see the role of comedy in um, demystifying and talking about serious topics like cancer? Oh, it, there, there is so much that comedy can do in this area, and especially considering that it's, uh, yes, it's a really good avenue for me to just talk about my experience. I mean, you talk about, um, you know, the people who um, need, um, you know, psychiatric, you know, referrals. It's like, what is the percentage of comedians who can just go out there and talk about it? Um, uh, I feel very lucky that I have this forum, but... In my experience, there's a lot of people who actually do not know 
what to say, what mm. goes on. Like, you know, all of my friends and family, um, they can't come up to me and go, you know, so, well, cancer, what's up with that? Like, it feels very impersonal. But the great thing about being able to do it in a comedy perspective is that you can come to the show and you can hear me talk about my very personal mm. journey and like uh, in a, in a funny way. And um, uh, it, my my wife Rama Nicholas, who is my director as well, she just sits in the audience and she just says, "People are fascinated. Mm. They're absolutely fascinated. People don't know what a stoma mm. is. People don't know what it's like to get a chemotherapy needle jabbed into their power port, which I still have. Like, and they're scared of talking about it for fear of yeah. saying the wrong thing. You absolutely. don't want to upset anybody. Well, you hear yeah. this all the time. I hear so many of my patients say to me, "You know, no one speaks to me about death or cancer, mm. and I and I know they're nervous about it, but." I don't feel it's my job to bring it up and we just don't talk. Yeah, exactly right. And so, you know, in this show, I'm, I feel like I'm able to talk about it because I've obviously gone through it uh, and it's my personal story. Uh, but um, also, you know, there are, there are themes throughout that people can um, really latch onto. But, but to what extent? Is everybody's story unique in their own? And mm. maybe that would get in the way. So if somebody comes out of your show and they bump into you outside the venue later yeah. on, they're probably going to jump on you and got a million questions. Yeah. But do they actually leave the show thinking, oh, I can apply what I've just experienced mm. to anybody who's experienced something like that? Oh, I would hate to I would hate to say that I am the be all and end all of the experience of what is cancer. And I think and, and I think part of the problem is that it is such a personal experience for everyone that you're never gonna get a general um, uh, all-round look at what it is. Uh, but I think what people could get out of it is is that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to um, uh, have a conversation in public about health uh, and it doesn't have to always be um, bogged down in seriousness or, um, you know, earnestness, yeah. Then in that case, then how were you when you were making small talk with other patients? Did you find yourself tripping over your tongue a bit or did you feel uh, relaxed to talk? Uh, uh, originally, I was absolutely falling over my tongue. and uh, Yeah. And, um, but, uh, and, I, and I must admit, I didn't get the chance to talk to a lot of people. Like there was a few people when I was having chemotherapy that I got a chance to have a conversation with. And um, uh, it, there, there is something about being in the experience that just lets you go... Right, so what's going on with you? You know, mm. and 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 uh, I noticed that people talking to me about that who have gone through this experience as well. It's just like you know they're very fascinated about the differences and the similarities. Um, yeah, so it's like a prisoner's opener. You know, <laughs> what are you in for? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, uh, so, but I'm just really happy that uh, I get a chance to to talk about this stuff. Let me ask you my favourite question then. What should we be doing differently slash better slash whatever? What, you know, what, we, did you have any bugbears? I know that's like saying can you, you know, rewrite the history of mankind. But um, <laughs> it's a big question. But um, what do you think? What, what were the, you know, uh, are there any stark things that we should be working on as an industry, as a healthcare industry? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. And I actually, I, I hate to criticise what has, like, uh, the on, industry that, you an open that, that literally saved my life. Yeah, we know what's, we know what's good about it because we tell everyone every day yeah. <laughs> about how great we are. Yeah. You know, but we... Re- I, 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 yeah. And, and this, is, this is less a criticism of the industry or something that you could change, but I, this is something that, that, I, that has changed for me in terms of how I deal with the, uh, with the medical industry is that I want every doctor to just act like a really concerned mum. 
Like, I want you to overreact. I want you to, you know, I want you to give me every test under the sun. I, if I have some dirt on the face, uh, I, I'm happy for you to lick your handkerchief and, and wipe it off. Uh, <laughs> That's interesting. What that do you think of that? You know, because it's tricky because it's certainly not the teaching we get. No, I know, I know. But just yeah. just coming from a, the perspective of, like, they thought they thought it was one small thing and yeah. it ended up being a nuclear bomb, Absolutely. like, inside my, in, inside my body. Oh, like sure. And so, um, and I'm not saying, like, this isn't, like, you should do this in general, but it's just more, like, be, being... Um, uh, overreacting is not necessarily a bad thing, I guess. No, you know, it's not. But, of course, we, there's two things to it. One, mm. we think to a degree that we have to maintain some degree of independence. So what's the word I'm after? Um, not independence. You know, we need to be taking a step back. If we mm. feel that if we act like an overconcerned mum, we're losing perspective. I'm, I'm mm. struggling for the right Objectivity. word. Objectivity. Objectivity. Absolutely. It, your your job is is almost impossible. Like you know, the job that you guys do is is so complex um, uh, that absolutely you can't you can't apply this sort of uh, <laughs> irrational uh, paranoia to every patient. <laughs> but you know what? You know what? Too. You know, on the topic of diagnosis, though. See, one of mm. the things with cancer. Look, I'm not an oncologist. I'm a psychiatrist, so I sit on the sidelines and help support people through. Mm. But I hear this story incredibly often as well, people who had a lot of trouble getting diagnosed and getting misdiagnosed. And every time I speak to oncologists about it and say, why is it so common? And they basically say to me, because cancer's bloody hard to diagnose. Mm. It presents in weird ways. It presents with very common symptoms. And if we investigated everyone who had a cough... um, with x-rays, we'd kill half the population with radiation. However, one in a thousand of them is going to have lung cancer and we've got to learn how to pick up the relevant cough that's the right cough and, you know, we've got to pick up <laughs> yeah. the relevant bowel symptom that's the right symptom because we investigate everyone, we'll get abused for doing too mm. many tests and, and it won't be... It won't and the be system health, couldn't handle that. Yeah, and so... So I just think cancer's really... I'm, I sound mm. like I'm making excuses. Apologies for that. I'm no, apologising for Look, making I, excuses. Like, I, I am over-exaggerating. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting one, yeah. though. Yeah. Um, I reckon we've got time for one. Oh, you go, Jess. No, it's okay, it's okay. No, no, it was part of the same comment, so let's have an, another question. I just wanted to ask, this, yeah, another, it's one of, one, one of my favourite questions because I'm in the industry. What about the wellbeing industry? You know, I have a bugbear that we don't that we don't integrate wellbeing enough into traditional medicine. We tend to get a little bit cynical and dismissive about it when it's got a hell of a lot to bring to the table. What was your impression? <laughs> uh, well, in terms of wellbeing, you, you just mean like the, that um, what you do afterwards and like how you take care all of yourself? The stuff, yeah, all the stuff about taking care of yourself. Everything mm. from, you know, some stuff that we would call straight medicine is in the wellbeing industry, like yeah. say nutrition and mm. good sleep, but other stuff like yoga and you know, uh, all the things uh, that sort of go along with giving you as a person meaning that is so important along with your medications, your surgery and your radiotherapy? Absolutely. I think it, 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 there is definitely um, room for, for it to be a part of the process. Like um, uh, nutrition is an interesting one because my nutrition before this was terrible. Uh, my, my wife says that I ate like a teenager, uh, you know, and um, I uh, was a very fussy eater as a kid and that has been uh, something I brought over to as an adult uh and there are foods that i had just never eaten before and have still never eaten um and but after you get cancer um you start to think to yourself you know what i should eat some of these things because Mm. um, i should eat a vegetable Mm. and so what i'm doing 
every night of the like show. Chips and stuff, yeah. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> like, for example, I'll give you an example of some of the things that I've never eaten ever before in the history of my life. Uh, broccoli, never had it. Peach, never had it. Uh, You've strawberry. You've never had broccoli. Never had broccoli. Ah, yeah, you're not missing much. No, I'm I, 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 I love uh, favourite yeah. vegetables. I know, I know. And I was just, I'm just super fussy and it's it's almost psychological. And so wow. what I'm doing every night of the show, uh, I'm going to have a selection of foods that I've never eaten before in the history of my life and, and I'm going to eat one on stage. That's and, so fun. And I can't tell you how psychologically, like... Like, I do not want to do this. In front I, of an audience, I, too. In front of That's an audience. Really I have a gag reflex when I eat something I don't like. And so <laughs> so the show stops being entertainment and literally becomes about me dry wrenching because I... Um, yeah, so... So on that point, I might just tell people if they avocado, want to be... Avocado, never had an avocado. If they want to be vomited on, <laughs> the place to go... No, it's laser light. Now, I just looked it up a couple of seconds ago on the computer. You can just you can just put in Comedy Festival laser light, or you can go to comedyfestival.com.au and you'll see it there. Do you want to give any? Tell us a, a little bit about the show, and then we'll go to a song. Uh, look, it's just a really, really fun, uh, light-hearted look at cancer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and look, all I can say is, if you don't come, you're a monster. Yeah, you're you're you're, you're basically yeah. you could make Adam sick um, because stress is bad. Um, it starts on. April the 10th. It goes to the 22nd. It's on 8.30 at night, Sunday, 7.30. It's at Acme in the games room in Fed Square. Um, as I say, comedyfestival.com.au. Adam, thanks so much for coming in Thank and talking for, about that. Thank you for having much me. Much appreciated. Yeah. And uh, our next guest is Sally Goldner. Now, Sally's been involved in the gender-diverse community for oh, 20-odd years including time at Transgender Victoria and the Bisexual Alliance of Victoria, and as a presenter on 3CRs, Out of the Pan. Uh, Sally is the 2015 LGBTI Victorian of the Year and joined the Victorian Women's Honour Roll in 2016. G'day, Sally. G'day, 3 triple R. There was a new one make a slip, sorry. If this was commercial radio, we wouldn't have any of that nonsense. We'd pretend that the other radio station didn't exist, but because we're community, we're a family. That's right. We Hashtag yay community radio. Yes. <laughs> hey, thanks for getting up and coming in. I've, I Pleasure. Asked, I've asked everyone this morning how far they came for the reasons that escaped me. How far did you have to travel? I travelled from the wilds of Bulleen, so only about 14Ks. Oh, you poor thing, Bulleen, all that way, 14Ks. That's right. I had to do a coffee stop down the road at a well-known religious coffee place, um, if people know their area of 3 triple uh, A religious coffee place. I don't yes. know. Yes. Um, an unlikely combination. Was the coffee good? It was, yes. That's why I'm awake now and we're ready to do the interview. Yeah, I had to have Fabulous. one too to get me going. Hey, Sally, um, we, we wanted to chat to you today mm. about the um, you know gender diversity in healthcare. So to get the ball rolling, you know, how... W- how, we were, our last guest was talking about cancer and some of the problems mm. that clinicians face being sensitive to the issues. Yep. How good, uh, how sensitive are health clinicians when it comes to issues of gender diversity? Sadly, we're not doing too well. There's some good specialist clinics in Melbourne, but they are sadly by far the exception rather than the rule. And there's too many stories of issues of both, we'll say, trans people where there's a connection to generalist care, but also specialist issues, say, coming out hormone surgery where things are going wrong in either clinic, um, doc, GP settings, public hospitals. Um, I, had, I had to say it's a disaster zone. I wish I could get us off to a better start, but seriously, we've got a lot of issues going on. So this is a really opportune thing to talk about. And some of it's sure lack of awareness, you know, where people aren't, you know, if someone walks in and they're not sure which pronouns the person uses, they'll take a wild stab rather than saying, hey, I respect your gender, which pronouns do you use, if any? There's a hint. Um, But unfortunately, there's a lot worse than that going on. Say, generalist care, an example, would be um, someone who 
goes to their regular clinic for, let's say, sprained ankle, and their regular GP who's supportive is away, and they see someone else who says, I've never met a trans person, tell me your life story, and your ankle's screaming at you in pain, you want to know whether you want to get, you know, heat pack, ice pack, physio, I don't know, just put your leg up, and you walk out with not getting the care, and then, of course, at the end, the GP says, thanks for telling me, educating me, I'm now charging you $80. Yeah, you say, thanks so much, I wasn't actually here to do your exactly. work job for you. Yeah. I think there's scandals all over the media this morning about Medicare billing, so yeah, but um, <laughs> there are, I, I woke up to it, I almost thought we should do it on the show, but decided to skip it. So I get that. What So poor language. Mind you, you know, f- funnily enough when you say that, though, we are always encouraging people to be curious about everyone, to learn about mm. them. But on the, by the same token, I get what you're saying. Um, it's not a curiosity. You're not there as a curiosity. You're yep. there as a consumer wanting adequate health care. That's right. Wanting to use the phrase individual-centred care for the needs in the present moment. And I, I'd add that if someone wants to educate, then that's their call. But don't force them to do it or make them guilty if they don't, that sort of thing. And there's too much of that happening. But, yeah, sadly, that's um, only the tip of the iceberg. What about things, discrimination yeah, not, then? Well, yeah, this is where we have a really difficult story. And I will give a trigger warning for transphobia and, sadly, threats of violence. This was a trans man, so for what it's worth, but it really doesn't make a, a, diff- a huge difference. Someone who's been battling lung cancer for the last couple of years, in and out of a major public hospital in Melbourne, and at one point was in the high intensive care unit. And unfortunately, lack of privacy, because people could see through the window or over the screen that separates the cubicles, meant that whilst he was being bathed one day, and we're talking trans men, very few, if any, are able to add a phallus because of the cost, which is a discriminatory thing in itself. Two visitors, for starters, look over the wall, see that he's trans, wait till the nurse has gone and his carer, then pop their head over the wall again and says, this is the really difficult bit, deep breath. We don't think people like you should be treated in public hospitals. We're coming back with an axe. Oh. And they did. And if it wasn't for one very brave small nurse who managed to hold them off, get security, and by this time the, the trans man's carer was back, I don't want to think what would have happened. Jesus. And that that's only one. And I know, I know five stories of this sort of magnitude in my own personal networks alone, let alone any research or putting a call out on Facebook for more stories. What happened next? What was the, uh, the, the clinic or the hospital's response? Well, the security did come, to, come up and get the people off the people away and sure they were charged with assaulting the nurse the problem is because they didn't actually get to threaten on that point the trans people it won't be recorded as a hate crime against trans people anywhere so this is often what happens things get buried or sometimes oh there's sorry i missed a point when the trans man reported the threat to the first nurse the response was oh look you're just hallucinating dear it's your medication good grief so sadly, we've got too many stories like that going on in the public hospital system, but others where people, trans people come into a hospital for whatever and have people gawking at them as if they're some sort of zoo animal, that sort of thing. And these sadly are the majority. We don't get um, too many stories of good care, but I can give you one if you like. Oh, I, no, I, I don't think we need... I mean, we get the gist... Yeah. Um, I don't think we need the good stories to balance it. We get that you're... I get that... I think we all get that you're balanced. Um, <laughs> you, but you're I'm not, a liberal. You're not here to tell us the good things. <laughs> um, 
What do we need? Oh, this is again such a silly question, and I feel like an idiot no. asking it. But what do we need to do to improve? Obviously, we've got to address privacy. Obviously, I mean, yeah. what do we do? Where do we go? I think this is the big issue, and I, I can only put out a plea for people working in any form of medical practice, whether it's physical or mental, whether it's a public or private hospital. Start asking your supervisors and your diversity people and all that sort of thing. What do you know about trans stuff? And start getting, you know, the, the higher up you can get, the better, so that there is that inclusive care and, you know, declaring an interest, because this is what Transgender Victoria does get training, maybe from us, but maybe from other organisations who are specialist in trans issues, so that you can know how to do it, so that there is that privacy, individual-centred care and, um, you know, and those other senses of protection. Just following on from that, just... Sorry, Jess, I just want to... Uh, Trainer wheels. <laughs> I almost gave away your real name. Oh no! Um, I'm just interested. Do you think there was any impact on the um, on the recent marriage debate? Mm. Uh, three of the big hospitals that I know, Peter Mac, Alfred, and Monash, all came. I don't know if the, uh, the others did too, but all came out with campaigns about um, making the hospitals more LGBTI friendly and basically saying we support diversity, etc., etc. Et impact? Yes or no? Um, look, I'm aware of the Monash one, um, but it's only a small start. And I think that people aren't quite aware of the detail of trans and gender diverse issues. And I yep. add in gender diverse to emphasise that many people are finding their true self as something other than male or female, non-binary, as it's also sometimes called. And so um, I think that marriage equality helped. It's good that we got it over, but it does also bring up a point that I have to be honest, I've been out for 22 years. The marriage, the postal survey period was the worst thing I've seen in a long time. And so mm. just being supportive of trans people, in, for starters, is good, but making sure that you do the work to be properly inclusive and then telling people and, um, you know, that sort of thing. It's got to be both. You can't just say, oh, we're LGBTI inclusive and maybe do a bit of gay and lesbian, which is sometimes is a flaw that happens. Just before we go on, just reminding everyone, you're listening to Sally Goldner, who's from Transgender Victoria, and on the panel today, myself, Dr Doolittle, the panel beater, and Trainer Wills, who has the next question, I, I believe. I do. Sally, everything you've said so far has been really excellent, obviously. Um but a lot of it could apply to the wider community, not just mm. healthcare. I guess I'm wondering what what's missing in healthcare specifically in terms of access and, and things like that. Yeah, I think that the lived experience of trans people and people say, oh, you know, yes, this postal survey, for example, affected younger people. It affected all ages and the mm. good people at the service switchboard, which is an, a mm. rainbow telephone counselling referral database service um, have confirmed it was all ages. If you've got that lived experience where you've seen some really horrible stuff and you keep feeling like society's against you, service providers are against you, you're really reluctant to come. Mm. So people need those signals. They've got to be subtle. Some people say, oh, what do we need to put, and I'm a bit exaggerated here, put rainbow-coloured neon lights on the top of the hospital or the surgery or whatever. No, there's little subtle signals, but it's about making sure there's staff there who know about it. Someone, Some people also say to us, oh, what, should we all wear rainbow lapels? No, only the people who feel really <laughs> competent and comfortable yeah. because that could make it worse. But there are things you can do to start doing it, like changing forms if you need to collect gender is the first thing. Having gender blank line and optional, not male, female, circle one. 
that's the little things we look for. And so it's not big rainbow neon lights on the roof. It's subtle signals that send those things. Having some gender-neutral toilets in the waiting area, those sorts of things. It's also got to be whole of organisation. It's no good being a good, say, GP if and here's some bad B-grade acting for your Sunday morning. Um, trans, trans woman rings up and goes, I'd like to make an appointment. Yes, sir, how can I help you? You're going to lose them. So it's got to be whole of the whole of team. Um, Sally, I'm wondering um, what distinctions do we meet, need to make um, when we're mindful of different life stages of trans people? So young, uh, well, we're at whatever stage of life. Great call because the other thing that younger people are facing, often trans people at any age will come out and then they'll be told, oh, it's just a phase or something like right. that. But young people will get the patronising youth phobia of you're too young to know about that and... You know, which of course defies the life experience of every trans person. Maybe I didn't have a word or could explain it at four years old, but I remember my first day at an all-boys school and walking up to the classroom going, hang on, don't feel like I fit here. So we know, and so it's that attitude as well, that sort of pathologising, um, demeaning attitude that needs to be moved away and just be affirming of the person and where they're at. And, you know, and the opposite would be, hey... Um, gosh, it must have taken a bit of effort to work up to that good on you or something, is a much better start than demeaning people. And, you know, particularly young people who are vulnerable, if their family at home isn't supportive and they're, say, being bullied at school, yikes, you could be their last port of call. And and then, for that matter, what about people who have, for, you know, no doubt horrible, tortured reasons, have kept it to themselves oh, for yeah. most of their lives? They're in their 40s, 50s, 60s now. Um, how, would you, how do we think about that? Well, there is the big issue that you've bought, people have bottled it up all their life and maybe in the last overall, say, five or six years, they've seen a bit of progress, a bit of discussion and thinking there's that bit of hope. And again, that needs to be affirmed. Just say, wow, good on you for hanging, hanging in there for so long or something, but glad that you've come to me and we can get, get the ball rolling or something like that. Just something that affirms where they've been, where they're at now and where you know can build them for the future is really good. You know, be positive, be respectful. It might sound, you know, they're the, they're the themes and then obviously they've got to be fleshed out. Another aspect that I'm keen to hear your thoughts on about how the health system is discriminatory in general is some of the cost of um, treatment mm. that goes along with being trans. Yep. Um, can you tell us the state of play for a start? Like, can you, the surgery, if, can you get surgery in a public hospital, for example? No. There's, there's a flying start that um, no trans surgeries are happening in public hospitals, but also hormone treatment. We've had, I can never say this word, endocrinologists, I've managed to do it, say, oh, this is still experimental, we won't do it. Now, that is discriminatory under state and federal law, but their attitudes are prevailing. So often there's limitations. There's also issues at the moment, for, again, for trans men with hormones, a lot of the um, relevant hormones have been taken off the market either due to perhaps overuse for people trying to use steroids mm. or because some suppliers are discontinuing, which has limited their um, needs um, or their choices um, available. There's only one left that seems to be on the PBS. So there's some issues. But surgeries, trans women, so if it was someone like myself having surgery assigned male at birth, the out-of-pocket cost is roughly $15,000 that's not covered by Medicare or private. But then for trans men, so someone assigned <clears throat> male at birth, You've got possibly top surgery, ten to $15,000. Hysterectomy, which unfortunately people say, well, your body's healthy, we're not going to do it, even though then in most states and territories you need that to change your birth certificate. But then if you want to add a phallus, big deep breath, 
$70,000 out of pocket in Australia mm-hmm. just for the first stage and then you've got to go overseas for more. So why, the, why, why is that, do you think? Is it be, my gut feeling is people see, people confuse trans surgery mm. with cosmetic surgery and so they think cosmetic surgery is a choice, you pay, whereas they're not seeing that this is a different category. Is that the... That's the thing. There's still this thing, oh, it's a lifestyle choice or there's a risk involved with it because people won't be assessed properly or those sorts of things and it is for those people who need it, it's just as life-saving as, say, open-heart surgery in our opinion. It needs to happen. The distress that people face if their sense of their self is too far removed from what the body was at birth is huge. So how, I guess that sort of, the issue here is how important is it for a trans person to be recognised in public as, um, as the correct gender for them? It's vital. It goes right to our sense of self to affirm our identity, our pronouns, our name, um, because otherwise it's a denial of us, which often I think is the first form of prejudice. You know, oh, it doesn't really happen. Well, it does. And um, so those things are critical to be recognised. Now, how each individual goes about doing that, of course, is a different thing. Understandably, a lot of trans women would do, say, the makeup, skirts, heels sort of thing because they thought that would help them blend in, but uh, maybe it doesn't. So, But it's just important, important that the person is affirmed and I suppose feels affirmed is the main thing. Can I ask, do you still... Oh, sorry. Do you still have to see a psychiatrist? I remember when I was a young doctor, there was clinics where people couldn't get any surgery until they'd seen a psychiatrist. I don't know what this... I'm, I'm, so I'm the two... Breaking that into two, the... Adult clinic, the Monash clinic, which is publicly funded, yes, you need to have some psych appointments before getting onto hormones. About four to six on average um, per psychiatrist, there's a need to see two for adults, and there's um, the children's, you know, lots of psychologists there. But And that's reasonable enough. They do have to make some checks for, I, I think the technical term is comorbidities, but I prefer just concurrent situations, just to be sure. I think that can be scaled down a bit and we'd want more of an informed consent model, which is being developed where people just are told, this is what will happen if you take hormones. Um, these are, could be some possible risks, that sort of thing. And that's slowly moving into gear and full credit to um, the my current head of the Monash Clinic in particular, Dr Yarko Erasmus, who's taken a very positive and progressive approach. But there still is that need, and I think there needs personally, in personal opinion, there needs to be a two-tier approach, I call it. You know, if someone's just presenting pretty reasonably, let's get on with it. But if there is doubt, then check in a bit further. Hey, Sally, I wonder uh, your perspective on how helpful or hindering pop culture is with trans issues at the moment. We've got the Caitlyn Jenner all over the media. We've had the um, reasonably popular series Transparent um, in recent times. There's a range of other things. Are they getting in the way or helping? It's a mix. Um, you know, I, I fully affirm Caitlyn Jenner's right to tell her personal story, but I don't think she has a sense of perhaps empathy for those less fortunate, <laughs> and that's been a problem. We've had some good ones. Um, there was a great one last year on ABC, and it might still be on iView, called First Date, where a young trans person played a trans character, which I think is pretty much a first for Australian, right. or say, arts media. Um, young 13-year-old trans woman, Evie McDonald, which was fantastic. But um, a lot of it's leading to a lot of... Um, problems. I mean, one that's cropped up in the last 24 hours is a well-intentioned local government council put a poll on his page, should we move more to unisex toilets? And unfortunately, right-wing troll types have taken it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a worry because, of course, you know, having at least flexibility um, in, you know, toilets of having gender neutral makes it easier for some people and also gender 
all gender changing rooms. If dad goes to the swimming pool with seven-year-old daughter, it helps other people as well, or mum with seven-year-old son in simple gendered language, that sort of thing. And so, you know, some, we've done work in workplaces where they're hesitant at first and then two years later they go, what was our problem? <laughs> and so, you know, I think, and the sort of toilets that local councils put into those, I call them one-at-a-time cell type of toilets where you're not going to have different people in there anyway. So what's the hassle schmassle? So that sort of um, hysteria that's being whipped up is problematic. And unfortunately, well, we're in community media. Sometimes commercial media can be after ratings points and clickbait and doesn't care about nuanced debate. So those sorts of things don't help. And um, so, yeah, um, you know, drill a bit deeper to, I'd say, to lots of people and just be an ally for trans people if you see that sort of nonsense around. Of course, the, you know, sadly, the real threat to women in public toilets is that element of males who are, think they have a right to demean women and that's what we need to stop, Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, Sally, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm Go wrong, is that there was a recent change in legislation where trans kids no longer need to um, get approval from the family court to affirm their gender. With changes like that that are happening, are you hopeful for the future or not? I am. For all the... St- the you know, the silly pop culture stuff we just talked about, I am hopeful for the future. So there were two developments. Um, one, 30th of November last year, where finally was at a decision of, of the court system, it didn't need to go through Parliament in the end, where um, those families where there was support for their child from the relevant parents and guardians to go through, as it's called, stage two um, adult hormones, as well, in simple language, um, they no longer needed the court approval if everyone was in agreement. And we've actually had one in the last couple of weeks where young people, if the, again, if the parents, guardians, young person are happy, they don't have to go to the family court for approval for surgery, which when you think about it, I can't think of any other process where everyone's mm. in agreement and they think it's in the best interest where you've got to go to the family court. So we're getting those developments. And the other thing is, you know, I say this a lot, I'm 52, 10 years ago, I think I'd met three out trans and gender diverse people under 25, and now we've got dozens. And I see that they're getting able to get on with their lives with a better start. I see eloquent spokespeople like Georgie Stone, who was Young Victorian of the mm-hmm. Year. Another one is Nevo Zezen, who had the book title of last year called Finding Nevo. And um, they write it, they're doing stuff at 18 and 20. That for me was almost unheard of. That certainly gives me hope and you see lots of young people marching with their families in Pride March every year and you think, yeah, that that shows we're progressing and that's what gives me the hope and also generally young people are, well, I'm going to be very 2014, apparently they're very evs, short for what evs, about gender and sexuality. So <laughs> That uh, is true. <laughs> that's one, a good sign. We're running a little bit out of time but I do want to get this in. What um, healthcare workers or hospitals... You've hinted at this before with Transgender Victoria. What can we do to get better? Are there resources? Can Like in a hospital, in, you know, get Transgender Victoria and pay them to do a consultancy. What can, where can we get help? Well, consultancy, yes, and we do training sessions of two or three hours on trans or all of LGBTI if you feel yep. that, that that's something you need as well and we can do various mixes of that. As I say, so do others. We can, you know, review policies for a fee so that the language is inclusive. Language is important in this area. Um, you know, to, it, that's what commu- I think is something that cri- it's, it's critical in communicating for us. So, yeah, get in touch with us via transgendervictoria.com. And what about like small groups like, say, GPs, solo GPs? Can they go onto Transgender Victoria website and look at, you know, stuff that might point them in the right direction? Um, we haven't got quite that level of resources, but get in touch with us and we can, u- we can usually work something out. Um, something we do need to work on is perhaps having 
you know, relatively open sessions where people book and we get 15 or 20 of a range of um, yes, service providers and that's got to be our next step, I think. But yeah, always get in touch with us. We can usually work something out if there's just a few questions. I will say that, um, you know, we're, we're not lawyers. We don't charge for every five minutes <laughs> or that sort of thing. And if someone's just got a quick question, we're happy to answer it, that sort of thing, because it could just be that difference maker that gets a trans person's life in the right direction. Gold. It's fan- Alan, talking of gold, that is Sally Goldner we've been looking, um, speaking to for the last 20-odd um, minutes from uh, Transgender Victoria and also Bisexual Alliance Victoria. Thank you so much for coming in, Sally. Pleasure. Can I also say a big thanks to Adam McKenzie, who was uh, on in the first half of the show. Remind you all that his comedy show Laser Light is on at the Comedy Festival starting very soon. Don't forget our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. Don't forget you can listen to our podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Speak to you soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.